earnings, retail, and the Fed next week. Welcome. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. We are glad you're here. Going to cover a lot of ground, so let's get right to it. I'm Danny Clayton, Dr. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome. Great to be here. And we got Mark Beck, Chief Growth Officer. Welcome to you. Thanks, Danny. You know, your lead off there, people think maybe you have some kind of code language, but we've got Brian to help us decode some of those things. So we'll dig in right away. The first thing you had to say there, Danny, was about earnings. And of course, Brian, we are smack in the middle of earnings season, which is where we get insights from companies as to their outlook. Well, Mm -hmm. really, they're reporting on how they've done, but more importantly is the forward look as to where they think we're headed, not only from their particular industry, but you get insights into the economy. And we translate that all into some of the data that helps us shape investment strategy on behalf of our clients. That's right. So on our our investment committee, we have this philosophy of looking at what kind of economic regime are we in and maybe going into, then what are the various themes as far as to take advantage of that view? valuations, vulnerabilities, and then we get the exact positioning of portfolios. And helping to inform those themes is really what we're going through now, the guidance given by executives on these calls. They report what they've done. That's really you know what the headlines talk about is, did they beat as far as sales or as far as on the bottom line with earnings? But we're really interested in that guidance as to what are they saying about those more from a qualitative perspective, what they're seeing. Some of the big themes that we heard so far have been about a resilient consumer and then credit conditions not necessarily having a credit crunch seems like it's more like a credit nibbling around the edges here as far as the constriction and credit so it hasn't been nearly as bad as what people have been expecting in the resilient consumer along with the resilient jobs market Mm -hmm. those two things seem to dovetail really well they do and we did get some confirmation that the consumer is resilient not just from the companies but even from retail sales data that came out from the government that's backwards looking it's telling us what happened in june and there is a slowdown but it's not like it's screeching to a halt, right? So there's this slowing down of spending, maybe a slight shifting of spending as well. But as far as on the jobs market, companies haven't been announcing or mentioning layoffs as much as what they did in previous quarters. And so that's always an interesting thing is to do a type of textual analysis of what they're saying. How often are they mentioning inflation or supply chains or artificial intelligence or layoffs? Thankfully, they weren't really talking a lot about layoffs. In fact, a lot of them have been talking about how they think they may be have right-sized their businesses in terms of the headcounts. And so as far as the resilient labor market, it's probably going to stay that way for a while, at least based on what we're hearing. You know, that's interesting because from the perspective of monetary policy, of course, one of the things we've been expecting to see is a slowdown in the economy, Mm -hmm. the recession that people have been waiting for it to materialize. But in the guidance, you're not really seeing that. In the data, you're not really seeing that. Yeah. If you look hard enough, it's kind of like one of those pictures where if you really squint, you can see it. Uh, And like all of last year, housing and and manufacturing were in recessions, but the broader economy wasn't necessarily as far as, you know, services was doing the heavy lifting. Corporate profits, when we look at it quarter by quarter, there were declines in earnings for about the last three quarters or so. And it looks like that might be finding a bottom or begin to actually turn higher. Our 
concern on our investment committee is that the outlook for what earnings might be in the third quarter and fourth quarter they're looking for a pretty strong bounce, almost as though the second quarter earnings might be the bottom, and we're not quite sure we're there yet. And that would align with the sense of optimism that we've seen in the stock market. And I think the concern would be, have has the valuation level of the market gotten ahead of that? So it's reflecting maybe an overly optimistic view of where earnings might be on a near term, whereas that might take a little bit longer to materialize. True, exactly. And that's the way that we've been thinking about it is that the market is forward looking. It's trying to anticipate what's happening, not just next quarter, but years down the road as well. It's just when will those earnings begin to turn and how aggressively will they turn? And that's where we have a little bit of near-term caution, but the market, uh, you know, everything's fine until it isn't. (laughs) Absolutely. So a couple of um, economic data points from the past week. Anything there that we should note that maybe would give us a little bit of indications? Yeah, I think that we can go into more detail later on, but as far as the big headline ones were around retail sales and industrial production, retail sales showed uh, slowing a little bit, not really too dramatic, but a, a slight slowing there. Industrial production I think it confirms the view that we did have a manufacturing recession and we may be finding a bottom for that because the declines have really slowed here. And if we find a bit of a foundation, maybe we go from a roving recession where it was from manufacturing, a slight slowdown in services to some sort of staggered or stumbling recovery. Brad Jacobson, Chief Economist at Annex Wealth Management. Mark Beck is our Chief Growth Officer. Folks, we know you're on the go. If you want to catch the Week in Review on Demand, it's available at the top of the hour, wherever you get your favorite podcasts, places like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, the Axiom Newsletter delivered on Sunday. Saturday, July 22nd, it's busy. Food Truck Fest, Air Show, Farmer's Market. Thanks for bringing us along. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Going to be right back on 620 WTMJ. Back on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show. Hey, subscribe to our newsletter if you're not getting it. It's a free delivery. Don't have to be a client. It's called the Axiom. You can do that at our website at AnnexWealth.com. You can do a lot of stuff there. Check up on upcoming events. Uh, Maybe get going with us. Click that Get Started button. In the studio, Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist at Annex Wealth Management. Mark Beck, Chief Growth Officer. Brian, right before the break, you started to talk a little bit about a roving recession. I wanted to circle back to that. Let's talk about that. Explain what you mean by that and and how we see that materialize. Sure. So, you know, a recession is really in the eye of the beholder. Um, There is no one official definition. There is a group uh, at the National Bureau of Economic Research and it's called the Business Cycle Dating Committee, where they have kind of uh, taken on the role of being the official judges as to when recessions have happened. The key thing there is have happened. They want to wait for the economic data to have come in and be subject to revisions, and so it's oftentimes months, if not years after the fact, where they will look back and say, yes, okay, that was a business cycle peak, and that was the trough, and the distance between the peak and the trough, that's the recession. And what we have seen so far is not this broad decline in economic activity. And they oftentimes look at it across a number of dimensions as far as manufacturing, retail sales, what's going on with incomes, especially inflation-adjusted incomes. And if there's a general decline in those numbers, then they will probably say, yeah, that was probably a recession. Some people think that the textbook definition is two consecutive quarters in a row of declines of real gross domestic product. You find you do find that in textbooks as far as, uh, you know, I've taught those introductory macro classes, but that's just a shorthand. And so when we look at it, it's more in terms of 
What's going on with specific companies, industries, and sectors of the economy? Are they experiencing declines in activity? When you adjust it for inflation, is the actual volume of activity declining? And we have seen that already in housing. Now, granted, a lot of that maybe was due to some uh, maybe bubblicious activity you saw as far as during COVID or coming out of COVID, everybody trying to move to the suburbs. That has really come off the boil. That showed up as a decline in activity. And then in manufacturing as well, where they have gone through a period of time, at least a year of a decline in real activity. Where we haven't seen it is in service sector activity. So if you think about leisure and hospitality, especially, you know, people doing the revenge traveling, maybe that has gotten a little long in the tooth. And so as a result, we haven't really seen the broad decline, but maybe more pockets of it. And that's why we'd call it more a roving recession instead of an official broad recession. And if I think about that from the standpoint of investing, you know, I think in terms of if we had the broad-based recession, we, we sort of understand what that looks like. And we know that there are likely changes we want to make on the equity side, but also on the fixed income mm-hmm. side. And you have a pretty good blueprint for yep. how to approach that, right? Reduce risk, reduce cyclicality in the yep. portfolio, you know, reduce long duration equity type positions. But then if you have this roving recession type of concept, I think about that in terms of working your way through maybe a little bit more focused, a little less broad. So you Mm -hmm. have to start to think about how it's going to impact different sectors and how you might approach the portfolio, you know, more targeted base. That's correct. And you know, one way that I kind of think about it as if you do anticipate there's going to be recession, we kind of know what the playbook for that might look like. As you said, that, you know, during a recession, it's oftentimes a good place to be with bonds. In the run up to the recession, that's where you want to take off some of that cyclicality. And so that would be things like consumer discretionary. You might have industrials um, and equity market exposure in general. So you can kind of make these broad allocation changes. Now, the key thing is being right as far as is a recession actually coming or not. And then when you emerge from a recession, oftentimes before the economy begins to turn, the market does first, mainly because the market is forward looking, right? It's anticipating the recovery. Now, in a roving recession, the way that we're thinking about it on the investment committee is not to make the big allocation changes between stocks and bonds. It's more what you do underneath the surface. That's where it matters more. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist, Mark Beck, Chief Growth Officer. Thank you, guys. We're going to take a break. We are going to be back. The great baby boomer wealth transfer is underway. It is a staggering amount and requires top-notch planning for the givers and the receivers. What do you need to know? That's next on Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management? You probably didn't notice, but one of the greatest transfers of generational wealth is taking place. Who gets credit? Baby boomers. That's right. Where are all those okay boomer jokes right now? Brandon Lehman, among other things, is director of Annex Private Client. Welcome back, Brandon. Danny. One of the greatest transfers of generational wealth is taking place. How much? If you look at it kind of from a whole perspective, there are estimates that it's $53 trillion is currently passing on to the next generation. But another stat, and this stat I heard almost 15 years ago, but I think it really is coming to fruition now, is that there are 10,000 people retiring every day. Oh. It is a substantial amount of people moving assets to the next generation, retiring, and just a lot of change. 
it is a staggering amount, and it's a whole lot more than just signing a couple of pieces of paper. And where we sit, it would involve all of Annex Wealth Management, right? Financial planning, tax planning, estate planning, all that. It takes an entire team to really work through all of these transitions. So when you look at it, there's traditional assets, right? Your IRAs, your 401ks, your brokerage accounts, but then there's assets like real estate, there's cars. When you get to the high net worth side, what you start to see is there's quite a bit of these assets, specifically real estate um, is an area where you need to do some planning. And that's, again, where the annex teams come in place. When you look at the financial planning team, where do these sit? You take the estate planning team. They're going to look at the financial planning team said, this is what it is. The estate planning team is going to say, okay, how is it titled? And then the two of them are going to get together with this tax team and say, is there a tax liability after death? How do we handle this? Where does this even start? Somebody walks in the door and they've got these assets. They've got these homes. They've got this. Real, they've got all this. And they want to start to plan to hand it down. Do we start with estate planning? No, I I, the best way that we start with that is we gather all the data. So it gets to be, I don't want to call it necessarily labor intensive, but that first meeting is let's get it all. And for the most part, these folks have a lot of it already in order, whether it's in an Excel spreadsheet or in a PFS, a personal financial statement, it already exists. And our job is to take that data. We extrapolate kind of some of the other things that need to be done on it, like valuations based off of maybe what Zillow or Redfin might say. We're going to put that into our software and then it's going to give us a real idea of where you sit. Now, is it perfect? the first time? No. But that's what the multiple meetings mean when you bring in these other teams. So I guess if you say who starts, the financial planning team starts it. From there, it gets passed on to really the wealth strategist and the wealth manager to sit back and say, okay, who do we pull in next? What is the biggest pain point that we see? How do we work through this? Because you don't know when it's going to pass. So I I don't want to be morbid, but you don't know. And unfortunately, we've had a situation where we started the planning and the time of passing happened a lot sooner than we expected. So it's getting on top of it right away, and the sooner the better. Now, the other aspect to this that is incredibly important is laws change all the time. For instance, we were working with one of our high net worth clients. We had had this discussion of their estate plan, and they kept pushing off saying, no, it's fine. We just did it. We just did it. Well, just did it to them was almost eight years ago. We've had a lot of changes in eight years. So it was, please give us the documents. We're going to go through it, and we're going to look at all this and see how to most efficiently work through the current tax laws, because it could change again. Brandon Lehman, director of Annex Private Client. We're talking about the transfer of wealth from boomers to heirs. $53 trillion is one of the figures that we heard. Tax planning squad, they're going to be fully engaged. Oh, yeah. When you look at the tax planning side of it, there's two aspects, right? There's the tax now planning side of it. Okay, so what does it look like now? How are we going to be tax efficient now? But then there's the other side of it. After you pass, obviously, there's some things that occur. If it's passed on through a trust, right, all of a sudden now you have a step up up in basis, depending on the trust. If it's gifted in lifetime, you don't have that step up in basis, but now the assets with the kids, it's outside of your estate. Maybe you've pushed yourself below the estate tax exemption. You've used up some of that exemption, which under current laws is going to change here, projected to change in 2026. So they talk, well, it's a lot of money right now. It doesn't impact most people. Well, it will. It's basically from what we've seen going to potentially be cut in half from almost 25 million to 12. Now, yes, that still sounds like a lot, but when when you throw in property, because most people just think they're investments, you start throwing in all the properties, you start throwing in, depending on if it's, especially if it's collector cars, whole different ballgame. I know somebody with a lot of those and he would need a plan for that. Yes. Right. It's incredibly important. Yeah. Um, 
You know, Brandon, one of the things that we did not mention, but I know we do definitely employ is our ears, right? We're going to be sitting down with the clients because we're not going to say, okay, here's what you're going to do. We're really going to ask, what is it that you want to do? It's all about legacy planning. What do you want your legacy to be? And how can we most efficiently and effectively help you achieve that legacy and give as little as possible to Uncle Sam? doesn't necessarily have to be a legacy for your kids. Some people don't want that, but maybe it's a legacy for charity. Maybe it's a legacy for an organization. Our job is to help you coordinate and understand what that legacy should be and then build a plan around it as efficiently and effectively as possible. Are you planning correctly? Is everything sewn up tightly to eliminate those questions and avoid conflicts? Brandon Lehman, Director of Annex Private Client. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Danny. You know, we got a number of different branches that makes it easy to meet. Elm Grove, Lake Country, Mequon, Appleton, downtown Milwaukee, right inside the Fister, Madison, Naples, Florida, Libertyville, Illinois, or as close as your computer at AnnexWealth.com. Bottom of the hour, news time. Let's go to the WTMJ Breaking News Center. We're back with Ask Annex. As always, head to our website if you got a question, AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Ask button in the studio. Sarah Kyle, Wealth Manager, hello. Hello, Danny. We got Matt Moore, the Investment Team Manager. Hello to you. Hey, Danny. First question, is buying a single share of a stock for a child to demonstrate how the stock market operates a good idea? I'm afraid if the child picks a stock and it tanks, it'll turn them off from investing. Yes, welcome. This is how it works. <laughs> Well, I'm a big proponent of teaching your children about investing early on. Teaching them that financial literacy and the power of compounding is one of the best things you can do to get them interested in investing. So I wouldn't let a fear of a stock tanking discourage you, but buying a single stock obviously is going to be more risky. So do it with the intention of teaching them the investing principles, the risk management, and taking that long-term approach. And start out with a high-quality stock in a company that makes the products that your child is interested in. So they should help pick it, do you think? A hundred percent. hundred percent. What's the Matt Morsey family kid portfolio look like? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. For our kids, uh, pretty non-existent at this point. I would take a little different approach to it is that instead of picking an individual stock, I would probably pick an index fund. Now, it's not going to be as potentially as exciting, but it might teach them other lessons. The compounding side is really going to be impactful from an index standpoint, and that's going to give them an idea of what the overall market's doing. You also have a lot less downside risk at that point as well, too. You don't have that risk of that single stock going down while the rest of the market's going up. Although seeing that go down probably is a good lesson for them to learn as well, too, is that investing is full of risks. No matter what you do from an investing standpoint, there's risks associated with it. Can't get that reward without that risk. So that might be a good lesson for them to see that, hey, this isn't free. If I'm going to take risks to get that reward, you know, I have to be prepared for this as well, too. Next on Ask Annex, never thought CDs would have a comeback, but here they are. What are your thoughts on how long? I guess they mean duration. How long do you lock something up? Yeah, you know, it's really going to depend on what the goal for that money is. That's where I always come back on almost any investing question is, what is the purpose for what you're doing? Now, is this money that you're going to use to spend on something? And if so, when? And then you want to tie up that CD to that time frame. If you just have extra cash and you're trying to get higher yields on it, you probably could layer out different time periods there, almost kind of like a ladder, you know, from an yield curve standpoint, we're inverted right now. So shorter term yields are higher than long term. So really in the next year or two is really going to get the best bang for your buck from an interest standpoint. But just understand that interest is probably going to be lower. Yields are going to be lower when that time period comes up. So you have to be prepared for that. The other thing is, you know, you might want to look at treasuries. Treasuries have different tax advantages than CDs do. Potentially are going to save some money there. So you want to compare those yields, but compare what the after tax yield is on that as well too, just to kind of compare the, the differences. Yeah. And just a basic rule of thumb, use a shorter duration when interest rates are rising and a longer duration when interest rates are coming down. 
Ask Annex. Got a question? You head to our website, AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Ask button. You don't have to be a client for that. We like to hear from everybody. Next question. What are the downsides to co-signing for our children's education loans? Well, there are definitely downsides, and this can be applicable to co-signing for a car or even co-signing for a home. The downside really only comes into play if your child doesn't make the payments on time or defaults on the loan. How this could affect the co-signer is you will become fully responsible for repaying that debt, so you have to be prepared for that. And the loan will also show up on your credit report, so any missed or late payment is going to affect your credit history. And it also might affect your ability to secure your own loan for something for your yourself. And most importantly, you have to keep in mind is the impact on the relationship if the loan does go bad and you have to take over for the child that you co-sign for. That could really strain the relationship. So just before co-signing for a student loan, just explore other options, maybe grants, scholarships, or federal student loans. There are plenty of options out there other than co-signing for your child's loan. And our final question on Ask Annex, my sister-in-law tends to favor and chase, quote, name stocks. What evidence are there that companies that are not well-known have good or even better returns? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, from our standpoint, you know, our team gets really, really deep in the weeds from an individual stock analysis standpoint. Areas in the market where we think that we could provide the most value or that there's the most value available are really in the stocks that don't have big names. Those are the areas that you probably don't have a lot of analysts covering it or maybe no analysts at all either. So if you find something that nobody else sees, you're able to better take advantage of what the potential returns are from those. If it's a name stock, something that everybody knows, there's less availability there and you're kind of just going with the waves, whether they're kind of crashing down, you know, you're going to go down with the stock. If they're building up, then you have a chance to make that money off of it. But if you really want to try to outperform, you got to go into places that other people are not. For investment, retirement planning, tax planning, and estate planning as a fee-only fiduciary, that's how we do it. Know the difference? Website, AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. Sarah Kyle, Wealth Manager at Annex Wealth Management. Thanks. You bet. Matt Morrissey, Investment Team Manager. Thank you. Thank you. After a break, you're going to hear the difference. A client of Annex shares his experience working with us. That's coming up next. This is Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management, and that's the goal of this segment. During our shows, we share the thoughts and talents of our team in hopes that you make the decision to partner with Annex Wealth Management for investment, retirement, estate, and tax planning. We believe in what we do and how we do it. But what's it like in the real world with real clients of Annex Wealth Management? Joining me is a longtime client of ours. And for sake of this segment, we're going to just give you a little anonymity and just call you Dan. That cool? That sounds great, Dan. That's great. Well, welcome to the show, Dan. Right at the top, because we operate in complete transparency, it's important for the audience to understand you are a client of Annex Wealth Management. That is correct. Annex is not providing any type of compensation for your time on this segment. Correct. And there are no conflicts of interest between you as a client and Annex as a firm. Correct. Let's get to the fun stuff. Dan, how far back do you go with Annex Wealth Management? I first interviewed Annex in late 2007, and I officially joined as a client in February 2008. You're a smart guy. You're a medical doctor. Was there a do-it-yourself portion when it came to investment and retirement planning? I did all my investment and retirement planning until I joined Annex. Everything? Everything. Read the papers, kept up on the charts, made your moves, all that stuff. Correct. I wanted to consider hiring someone prior to that. Over the years, I had looked at different firms and different advisors, but I never found someone that I felt gave me a value for what they were offering, and I felt that many 
many of the people were more interested in their fees and what they could get from me rather than what they could do for me and help work with me on my long-term plan. Was there a moment on the path to retirement that you said, you know what, I probably really should have a pro in place? I considered in the early 1990s hiring someone, and over the years, I periodically looked at different people. And then in 2007, I said to my wife, I've reached a point in my life where I want to have more free time. I don't want to have to do studying and wondering about investing and making all my financial decisions and planning decisions on my own. I had accumulated a fair amount of assets at that point, and I wanted to have more time with my wife and family. And so I decided that I was going to hire someone, and there were better options by that point. The whole financial planning environment had changed where there were better firms and that were more concerned about clients than just charging fees. What was it that led you to choose Annex Wealth Management as the partner? In late 2007, I researched a bunch of different firms and I picked four of them. I made my wife go along and I interviewed all four firms. I had a list of questions I prepared and I asked all of them the same questions. After discussion and looking at all of my options and having interviewed everyone, I spoke with my wife and I decided that Annex Wealth Management offered me the best team to work with. Things I liked about Annex is that it was more than one person, it was several people, and they offered different areas of expertise. Also, they were going to work as a fiduciary. They were going to charge me a percentage of assets based on a yearly percentage that covered all of my financial planning, not just investing, but if I had questions about paying my mortgage early, or how much money should I save for my kid's college education, or if I should invest in other things, or how much I should put in retirement assets versus other assets. And so I really wanted someone to help me with that. Also, to talk about tax management, to talk about as I got older, if I needed long-term care insurance, and just a number of financial questions. And the thing I really liked about Annex is I didn't get charged an extra fee for every question I asked. When I used to meet with my accountant, if I would ask an extra question, there was an extra fee. And with Annex, I knew what I was paying, and it was a percentage, and it was the same every year. And for that, I could ask any questions that I wanted. Know the difference with Annex Wealth Management? We're chatting with Dan, a longtime client of Annex Wealth Management. So you've been with us over 13 years. I know what got you in here, but how did we keep you for all these years? Annex has been a great partner for me and my family. The reasons I hired Annex in the first place continue to be true over time. They took away a lot of work for me. I no longer had to study and figure out my asset allocation and what things I wanted to invest in. Annex took over all that. My financial planning decisions regarding funding my kids' college versus my retirement versus paying down the mortgage and other financial decisions, they helped me go through all those decisions so I didn't have to do the homework that I did previously. As I moved along in my life, different decisions came up. I'm older now and I moved towards retirement. They helped me make a decision as to when I could retire and how much money I needed to retire. They helped me decide what to do as far as long-term care insurance. They helped me decide what to do with health insurance as I retired. All of those decisions and questions I was able to discuss with my team at Annex, and they were able to give me advice, and they didn't charge me any extra money for discussing those. I just have the one fee which covers all my investments, but it covers all my financial questions and decision-making. The other thing and the other reason that I really wanted to hire someone is that if something happened to me, my wife would not know what to do, and I did not want to ever leave her in a situation if I would pass away for some reason that she wouldn't know what to do. 
now with having Annex and having all my assets and all my paperwork here, if something happened to me, she would come in and talk to the team and they would take care of her and everything is already set up. Let's talk about the really good stuff. How's being retired? Being retired is great. I am very happy in my decision. It was hard for me to leave medicine, which has been a huge part of my life, and my patients are like an extended family to me. I was very fortunate. I had awesome patients who are really good people, and many of whom I had known for more than 20 years, and I had a long-term relationship with them, so that's the hardest part of But also in medicine, I worked a lot more than 40 hours a week. It took away from my family, and so I reached a point in my life where I wanted to devote more time and energy to my family, and I felt I owed them that, and that's the main reason I retired. Know the difference. The place to start with investment, retirement, estate, and tax planning, AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. Dan is a longtime client of Annex Wealth Management. Dan, thank you for letting us be part of what sounds like a wonderful start to a retirement. Thank you very much, Danny. Of course, this is the time of the show that I always remind you that this show will be available at the top of the hour as a podcast, wherever you get your favorite podcast. So maybe you came in partway through. Maybe you want to listen to it again, because I think we had a pretty good show. Great example of what Annex Wealth Management does. I'm Danny Clayton, still in the studio. Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist at Annex Wealth Management. We talked about it earlier, but the retail sales numbers, really interesting And it looks like Americans still want to have just that tiny slice of a good time maybe on a weekend, right? We're still going out. Yeah, it it really, it is there. It's slowing, right, as far as uh, the 0.1% increase in sales at food and drinking establishments. It was less than expected, but it is still growing. When we put it in the bigger picture, it's up well over 8% year on year. It's one of those categories that despite higher prices and and more inconvenience, longer lines, things like that. People are still looking for those experiences. I can name maybe one or two Taylor Swift songs. However, the Taylor Swift phenomena, did you see what that did for economic activity in the markets that she that she visited on this huge tour? It, it is amazing. You get a big tour coming in as far as what does it do for the hotels, what does it do for transportation in the area, if you're an Uber driver or taxi driver or for the restaurants. I end for the broader retail scene as well as far as people going to the shops i know uh, for my family we went up to the twin cities and we saw an imagine dragons concert there and you know you had the hotel you also then had all the food associated with it uh yeah there's all sorts of spillover effects and yeah that swift or taylor swift phenomenon is real yeah thank you swifties okay let's talk about industrial production what are you seeing there Yeah, so industrial production is one of those really interesting ones because it gives us a picture as to what's going on with different parts of the economy that a lot of us think about. Maybe we work for somebody in that area, uh, but I think sometimes we take for granted, like what's going on with manufacturing. So when we look at the utilities, as far as that part, that's really much driven by the weather. Is it overly hot or cold? But really what's going on with manufacturing? Auto is an area that has experienced a little bit of a rebound because there were all those supply chain bottlenecks, those are beginning to clear. But the broader manufacturing picture is actually showing signs of continued slowness. Um, The area that we've been really looking at on the investment team for longer-term investment opportunities is things like capacity utilization, a lack of investment that we're seeing across the manufacturing space. Everybody is almost like cuckoo for artificial intelligence, but what about upgrading equipment at manufacturing facilities? An area that's of a special concern is with energy. 
as far as with uh, oil rigs, things like that, that they're running at a capacity utilization over 99%. That is very limited excess capacity. And we think that could have some implications longer term for their profit margins and even for oil prices. Were you surprised that the semiconductor plant that's under construction in Arizona, was that Taiwan's? Taiwan Semis? I think that was, um, yeah. That they actually had to put a pause on it, and it's not because they can't build the thing, it's because they don't think that they have the workers for it. Yeah, that's just it. You can't just build it and then the workers come. It's kind of a field of dreams idea. Uh, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. This requires specialized skills, and there was a lot of uh, fallout from the idea that they might need to import workers, even if it was just on a temporary basis, to train domestic domestic workers to work in those plants. You mean like H1NB? Is that, is yeah, that it, it'd or, be or, one okay. of those okay. uh, types of arrangements or a shorter term arrangement. It was unclear as to what it was, but I know some of my family members who work at in you know paper mills and things like that, a lot of what they do is programming. It's about you know programming the different yep. uh, pieces of equipment that are actually doing the work there. Let's talk about housing real quick, then we'll take a look at next week. What what do you see in there? Yeah, the housing picture is one where you still see that divide between existing home sales and new home sales. With mortgage rates where they are, a lot of people feel locked in to their existing homes. And so there's still this lack of inventory across a lot of the United States. Now, obviously, each location is different. In real estate, they say it's all about location, location, location. That is still very true. But broadly, existing home sales, there's just not a lot of inventory. And so people are shifting more into the new home sales market. And we've seen that rebound in home builder sentiment as a result of it. As they said on that ship that one time, iceberg dead ahead. We've got the Fed meeting next week. Oh, yes, we do. That's going to be the center point of the week. It's smack dab in the middle of the week. It's one o'clock central time on Wednesday as far as when the announcement comes out. I think that they've sort of um, are going to do... I would call it a hesitant hike. They had what was called a hawkish hold. So they held rates where they were at the last meeting with strong language saying, hey, we're going to hike again. But now the data has weakened on the activity side and on the inflation side. Now they're a little bit hesitant to hike, but they probably feel like they still need to do it. Yeah, you said, I think I heard you do a report and you said they maybe maybe painted themselves in a corner. Yeah, I, exactly. I think they have. They've really talked it up so much that they really feel like they need to hike two more times. The market believed it. Now they think, well, only one more time. Maybe it's one and done. Brian Jacobson, thank you very much. Thank you. Brian is our chief economist. Folks, the decision you make in July of 2023 will have an impact on the rest of the year into the future. Is today the day? Just takes a couple of minutes. Click that Get Started button at AnnexWealth.com. We'll be back here next Saturday at 10 o'clock. It's Money Talk, the Annex Wealth Management Show on 620 WTMJ.